Hey everybody, welcome to episode 11, 11. of the uh, Near Memo, where we talk about the intersection of search, social media, commerce, and how it ties into local. And joining me as always are David Mim and Mike Blumenthal. I'm Greg Sterling. And we've got a, another exciting discussion for you today, starting with David. I'm not sure which one of us was more surprised that we're on episode 11, but we have made it this far. Uh, so pat on the and, back. And as a note for me, it's a highlight of my week getting talked to oh, you guys. That is, that is great. And I also enjoy it very much. The highlight of my week is going to sleep on Friday night. That's true. But this is a, this is a very close number two. <laughs> okay. Very good. All right. So we'll get, we'll get right into the content. Uh, no more messing around. So I, Greg, you highlighted this week, the Facebook small business survey that came out, I believe, uh, Wednesday of this week, basically a very, uh, a pretty representative cross-section of small businesses in America um, by, I was surprised it skewed actually more towards established businesses, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as being particularly active on Facebook uh, relative to newer startups. Um, but it, it looked at a very wide range of SMBs and there were a number of data points that were, were fascinating. Uh, a couple of them that I wanted to highlight, 35% of businesses uh, a year ago reported zero sales online. That number uh, in the last 30 days is all the way down to 13%. So that strikes me that that means 22% of SMBs adopted some form of e-commerce over the last year, which um, I think we've, it's sort of an, another independent validation of that general range of SMBs that's adopted e-commerce in the last year. So I thought that was that was pretty fascinating. Uh, one really fascinating stat, uh, women-led uh, businesses were five times as likely to say that the shift to online tools has helped them survive the pandemic, um, which strikes me as a you know SMB software product guy, uh, could be that our best market is actually with women uh, who are more likely to adopt these online tools and more likely to get value out of them uh, that actually helps their business. Uh, and then the third data point was, was sort of less encouraging, less positive, um, that the pandemic is clearly hurting business, small businesses anyway, uh, who are more likely to be in minority communities uh, at, at a higher level than uh, in, in white communities. So there was a uh, one of the, I think figure 10 I'm looking at on the screen right now, uh, the proportion of small businesses that closed or reported that sales fell by more than 50% um, was substantially higher in, in majority minority neighborhoods than in uh, non-minority neighborhoods. So that's, um, you know, that's unfortunate. There's a whole range of reasons, access to capital, um, you know, sophistication and, and access to um to online tool sets, uh, historically, probably much harder to ramp up if you haven't had exposure, you know, so all the, the digital divide things that you've talked about, Greg, uh, I think probably well, come so, into play there. So some in the larger community also, I mean, in some of those communities, there was more financial distress than in right. white, white communities. So that also plays into demand. I would just anecdotally, my wife and daughter, friends that sort of exited New York City, they were yoga instructors, dance instructors, Visit, you know, physical training instructors, all those women were able to create their own brand online, either with the uh, yoga studio initially, but ultimately by themselves. So there's this unbundling going on of these very talented 
yoga trainers that my wife now religiously goes to two or three times a week remotely. She never had access to them before. So it's, mm. it's more than just, just keeping a business going. It's creating new opportunities and new types of businesses and where I, the content is being unbundled from the delivery mechanism to some extent. Well, this is a very important and interesting point I want to come back to, but I want to mention David's uh, observation about the, the women, women owned businesses. I mean, I think they also suffered. I think the report also yes, talked right. about them, them suffering more, but their, their propensity or their, their ability to adopt e-commerce uh, more than the male owned businesses was, that's a very interesting, that's really interesting. And it, I don't think gender has really been a, a, a category that SaaS companies have targeted, you know, when they do, when they talk about personas or whatever, it's typically, you know, it's not, it's not a female centric business unless the, unless somehow the, the, the seller is selling a product for women or right. something, but just in general SaaS, not, not typically. So that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it sort of corresponds to, in a vague sort of way, corresponds to consumer purchase decision-making, which is l driven by women in many, many cases, you know, so especially like big household purchases, um, very often driven by women. So really interesting observation there. Um, Mike, I, I, uh, your point about the influencers, you know, these, these individual employees who then became, you know, arguably influencers or created their own brand. I mean, I think that's, that's a really interesting phenomenon. Also problematic because not everybody can succeed, right? I mean, I think it creates freedom for those that are good at it and have success and luck, but not everybody's capable of doing that, you know, and it, it sort of ties into the Substack issue that I'll be talking about. But let's go to, let's go to you first, Mike. Sure. So this week at, at Near Memo, we published some uh, survey data that we generated, uh, traveling and eating out or titled traveling and eating out or what Americans have been missing most. We created an open-ended survey and we surveyed 500 adults and they could answer up to with, with whatever they wanted to the question, when you feel safe and the economy open up, opens up, what are three things you plan on doing? And not surprisingly, you know, the top three things were travel, dining, in, indoor dining and visiting with friends and family. Uh, dining and travel were far ahead of even the third one. Um, but we, the, the way the survey was structured, which was open ended, allow them to express desires more than what they actually do. Even I'm an example. I certainly have this deeply strong desire to visit friends and family, not just visit, but give them hugs. And I, first thing I did was went out and got a haircut. Um, so obviously there's a difference between what people say, want to do and what they actually end up doing. But I think it's an indicator that there will be a rebound. Now, so likewise, though, I'm doing a similar survey where they're grading on a scale of one to seven, uh, answering the question, once we reach herd immunity, how comfortable will you be? Will you be doing everything you did before the pandemic? And as I expected, somewhere in the order of 23, 24% of respondents, had, you know, or even more, 30% are still not fully comfortable, even after what is the perceived to be the end. So there are going to be headwinds in many of these areas that people want to do. There's still going to be some percentage of people that aren't going to be feel comfortable going back. And as such, even industries like restaurants, if the top 10% or 10% of their client base doesn't return, even if there's a boom, it's still going to be a struggle, I guess is the way I take that. Well, 
I think it illustrates the need for a kind of hybrid approach, right? I mean, you need to, you need to maintain delivery. You need to maintain all the things you were doing and then, and then also prepare for people to come back. Which is going to be hard. It's, it's like you got to be good at so many things, right? I think the skill set needed in a restaurant to do one thing is dramatically different than the other. Um, but, but certainly companies like Target and those guys are getting good at all three. Um, I agree. That's right. And there was also, uh, Greg, you, you covered this in one of our bullets as well in the, in the daily newsletter, the semi-daily newsletter, uh, that consumers intended or uh, not intended, actually did spend a huge chunk of their stimulus checks in March uh, on, you know, some of these retail and, and uh, other, other services. So I think that not only is there desire to do this in the future, but we're already seeing the, the rebound happening. So. The thing that's really fascinating to me that is is a complete paradox, and this was also surfaced in the Facebook uh, study because they did a companion consumer survey, is this kind of buying more online but more interest in local at the same time. I mean, this seems to exist in, 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 in almost two parallel universes because they've always been talked about as historical uh, zero-sum. You know, it's like I'm buying more online, I'm buying less locally. but um, people, people, I've heard this again and again and again, people are more and more focused on local, but they still are buying more online. And it's just, it's kind of breaking my brain a little bit, you know? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, it's, it's attitudes and behavior exactly, but I do think there's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that we need to explore some more, I think. All right. And speaking of, Local Substack Local, which is uh, Substack, the subscription newsletter platform, announced this week that they were going to give a million dollars away to up to thirty people uh, in the form of cash advances to create local news newsletters. And they cited several examples on their platform that were apparently doing pretty well. And um, they're soliciting applications that run through the end of this month, essentially. And then they're going to have a panel of judges assess who to give the money to. And then in addition to the money, you get uh, access to journalists, mentors, and uh, health insurance, and design services, and some other stuff. And they're going to take 85% of your money the first year, and then you you get to keep most of it, uh, any subscription revenue that you generate after that. So they're going to give you 15%, they'll keep 85%, but they'll give you up to $100,000. I don't know how that math works out, because they're saying 30 they give you know thirty million divided by thirty is like thirty three thousand, but they're going to give up to a hundred thousand to people. So I don't know how that's going to exactly work. But nonetheless, the idea is: is this going to make any kind of dent or be um, you know reparative, restorative of local news? And I think it's great that they're doing this, and I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. But you know, there have been so many efforts, Patch most notably uh, in the past, that have tried to crowdsource local news or create a local news model has been very unsuccessful because I just think structurally at this point, there's nothing to support uh, local local news from an advertiser standpoint. It's a similar problem to the women creating their own yoga studios online. Exactly. How do, you, how do you get visibility and expand beyond the people that know you? I think it'd be very difficult in most markets, even big markets, to achieve the scale you need to succeed at but unlike yoga, where your audience can be global, the audience for news about a small town in you know rural right. Oregon is really pretty limited to just that small town. So exactly. I think, I think to the extent that this succeeds, it will probably do so in markets that are already 
reasonably well served by, you know, alt news weeklies or uh, existing, you know, quasi nonprofit um, journalism outlets, I, I just don't see that the subscriber base is going to be high enough in a lot of smaller towns that are the true news deserts, which are creating all these problems for society uh, as a result of the collapse of the news industry. So and anecdotally in our town, which is fits your description of a, of a news desert amongst other things here being a desert, but is that all of the journalists that were at the local paper have long gone on to careers as government PR people or PR people in industry and are no longer in the field. So what remains is a very uh, limited core of what was there before. Well, this is this is the challenge with everybody being an independent contractor, being trying to be an influencer. Is that you know, in some cases, you need some sort of structure behind you and a, a foundation to do the kinds of things that you're not good at. Not everybody's a born marketer, right? I mean, right. somebody may be a good writer, a good investigative journalist, but they're not necessarily going to be capable of doing the r- wide range of things that you need to do in order to succeed as a as an individual. You know. Making TikTok videos, you know, soliciting, you know, building email lists, and all the all the stuff that people have to do these days—it's—it's it's pretty challenging. That is something where Substack could play a an outsized role in, you know, I don't know if they're going to run ads to potential subscribers in a given market it's, it's or whatever. Not clear. But they, it's not clear. They, yeah, they could and should be in a position to do that if they really want to make a go of. This, yes, I mean, ironically, ironically, you're right that 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 they become this sort of alternative to the publisher that maybe can provide some of that infrastructure that the that the individual influencer doesn't have but i mean we're we're now sort of in this kind of influencer society you know i mean all that they've been sort of poaching these big name journalists and paying them huge amounts of money and also sort of niche uh celebrities to to publish on substack you know it's been sort of a semi-controversial thing um but People are, are, you know, the people that can are trying to maximize their value in the market and trade on their sort of existing celebrity. And everybody else is, I think, you know, it's going to be much more challenging for them if you're not a, if you're not, you know, uh, a, a known commodity. So. I think that's right. And it's, you know, I, again, there, there are fewer known commodities in, uh, and local news, yeah, smaller local news markets, and there are fewer subscribers to those known commodities. So, well, I, I also pay for too many subscriptions. I was telling you guys before beforehand. I mean, I've got like six stre- streaming subscriptions. I've got you know multiple L.A. Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, uh, New York Times, and there's subscription fatigue. You know, I mean, this is everybody's. We, we talked about Reuters now moving to a subscription model. All these all these journalistic publications are migrating away from the advertising model into subscriptions for obvious reasons because they don't get a lot of great ad revenue and it's there's the consumer can only pay for so many subscriptions and you know everybody else is SOL I think although I'm I'm you, I'm I'm the uh, the one who proves that there's not never too many subscriptions that I'm willing to pay. I don't even know how many subscriptions I'm paying for at this point. I think that would be, you would fall <laughs> into the category of the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, exactly. I just got to rein all this stuff in. Um, so, uh, any other any other things that you want to talk about before we say uh, goodbye? Any other? Int- I mean, there's a ton of interesting stuff going on. I'm sort of overwhelmed by all the news. Um, you know, but um, man, I thought that the uh, 
the story on CNBC this week about the uh, spike in Google Trends for when is the real estate market yes, yes. going to crash. I mean, that's yes. just fascinating, the amount of, of yes. consumer data that is coming out of Google Trends these days uh, that can be used for all sorts of purposes. I think uh, it's a good reminder for all of us as marketers to, to start there with our market research. Well, and, and people have been saying that for years with search data, right? Search data is predictive of future demand. It's also, you know, indicative of present thinking. I mean, it's, it's pretty product development. I mean, it's all, it's, it's an evergreen source of, of feedback from the market. I mean, I, that what was fascinating to me about that story is like, is that, uh, people, is that wishful thinking or is it predictive? Is that people hoping the market is going to crash so they can buy a house? Or is it really, you know, reflective of a bubble that is in fact going to come to pass in the next, you know, six months or three months or whatever? That's right. All right. Now it's time to say goodbye. Thank you for listening to another episode. Uh, be sure to sign up for the Street Fight Summit session uh, with Greg and myself and Amanda Jordan. And Mike, I think you're also speaking, uh, I speaking on a different session. Reputation yep. and reviews. Yep. And don't and, forget to sign up for the three-time-a-week newsletter at yourmemo.co. Exactly. And be, and be sure to give us feedback. We're really taking it seriously. It's very, very, very helpful to us. And once again, thanks for listening. Have a good Have a good. Whenever, you know, fill in the fill in the next day, next couple of days after you listen to this weekend, Thursday, Friday afternoon, whatever it is. OK. All right. Thanks for joining David, Mike and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.